This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports, the award-winning subscription that inspires your child to learn about the world. Featuring a new country each month, packages arrive filled with souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Fans of Mom and Dad are Fighting can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 6th. The You Put That Ninja Sword Where edition? Actually, it's the Mom and Mom are Fighting edition. You'll see why in a sec. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 3, and Wally 1. Dan is off today traveling around Turkey with his wife, but my old double X Gabfest pal, Hannah Rosen, is joining me from D.C. Hannah, hey. Hi. Tell us your kids' ages and names. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. No. Sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, I'm Hannah Rosen, and I am the mother of Noah, who is 13, Jacob, who is 11, and Gideon, who is 6. Thank you for coming on. Totally fun. Okay. On today's show, we'll talk to family doctor Mary Colbrenner about what is normal childhood sexual behavior and what is not, and get her thoughts on the what I think are ridiculous allegations that Lena Dunham sexually abused her younger sister. Then Emily Bazelon will join us to talk about teens and phones. When should they get them? Should parents police them? How worked up should we be about sexting? All that good stuff. Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about Jesus's birthday. We will also have a special editor-in-chief parenting triumph or fail in our Slate Plus segment. Julia Turner, Slate's editor-in-chief, will join me to tell me about a triumph or a fail. So if you haven't signed up for Slate Plus already, now is the time. Two other announcements, and the first one is especially important today. Those of you who listened to our last episode, Hannah, did you listen to our last episode? Mm-hmm. Okay, then you also heard Dan express his, I believe the words were, secret disdain for stay-at-home parents. Understandably, this pissed a lot of you off. Unfortunately, Dan is away this week, so we can't discuss it on today's show. But I just wanted to let you all know, those of you who wrote in and called in and those who just stood at home, we heard you, we read your emails, we listened to your calls, 
We've been talking about it, and we will address the subject, the tensions, and unpack Dan's secret disdain, read some of your very heartfelt and angry responses, and much more next episode. So thanks for, you know, being great listeners and being in touch, and we will we will talk about it next episode. Also, the regular plea, please subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and please keep spreading the word. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Hannah, you're up. Oh, man, I have an epic fail. Oh, yay. Since, <laughs> since we're talking about teenagers, I will share it. So it's Halloween. We're all getting dressed up. And Noah, who is, again, my 13-year-old daughter, is decides she wants to be Hillary Clinton kind of on the spot. She's putting on, you know, because she, she just bought a red jacket. So she's putting on the red jacket, asking me if I have red pants, which, listeners, I do not have red pants. And we're in the bathroom, and she puts on, she starts to put on makeup. Like, she puts on some mascara and some eyeliner. And, and I look at her and I say, oh, my God, you look so much better. <gasps> oh. So she says, you know, you're not supposed to say that to your 13 year old daughter. And I say, yes, I know that. And we laughed and it was OK. I have said worse things, but it's OK. Given our relationship, it was kind of a funny moment, but um, it was pretty, you know, it just came out of my mouth. I want to live in your house. It's so fun all the time. <laughs> all right. I have a triumph. It's a failure of my own child, but I think it's a parenting triumph. Harry had changed money around the house. He got $5 for Halloween from an aunt, and he had a dollar from something else, and he, like, scraped together 87 cents, and he had $6.87, and he wanted to go to the toy store. And because of last episode when we talked about kids and money, I decided, all right, he has this money. I'm going to let him, like, if he wants to spend it, I'm going to let him, like, figure out what that means. Even though I knew we would go to the toy store and all he would want would be Legos, and there are not Legos for $6.87 or even close. And that's exactly what happened. We went to the toy store. There was nothing he could afford that he wanted in the Lego department. He had a total shit fit in the store. I don't know if your kids at this age could still have shit fits. I don't even know. I think. Yeah, one of them could. Definitely. All right. Yeah. Well, so he definitely can. And, you know, it would have been incredibly easy to cave and give him a couple of dollars to be able to buy something he liked. So this is like a total, you know, like pat on the back parenting triumph because this is exactly what anyone should do but I didn't cave I let him you know he made a scene I dragged him out of the store I felt like I did the right thing by not letting him have any more money oh man you're hardcore <laughs> you, you call that like an absolute triumph I mean, yeah I think so I mean like you know had I given him a couple of dollars he would have not learned anything about money and gotten another damn Lego which he doesn't need I mean he had 687 there were stickers in the store there were things he could have bought and I explained to him that you know, you can save this, save this money, and you'll get some more money, and then you can afford the one that's ten ninety nine. And he couldn't deal. He couldn't deal. But you no. did. Did he get the same? See, I thought the story was going to end differently. I thought it was going to end with either he chooses to buy something that costs six bucks after his temper tantrum, or he, you know, then says, "Okay, mom, I'll save my money at the end." Well, but, no, know. the real way it ended was that he, I gave him like a million chances to make a decision and explained it to him over and over again, and I very much understood his frustration. So I like gave him, you know, I, we were there for a long time with me talking to him. And he, like, said one mouthy thing too many, and I said, we're leaving. And then right. he threw himself on the ground and started screaming. Right, right. But do you think message absorbed? Oh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different That's a different issue. I guess that yeah. is the point. But anyway, I'm going to call it a triumph. Let's move on. Okay. 
On to our first topic. This week, conservative writer Kevin Williamson accused Lena Dunham of sexually abusing her younger sister as a child after reading in Dunham's new book that when she was a kid, she kissed her younger sister on the lips, looked inside her baby sister's vagina, and masturbated in bed with her sister sleeping next to her. Williamson's accusation has caused yet another Lena Dunham event, with many, including Slate's parenting columnist Melinda Wenner-Moyer, providing ample evidence that what Dunham describes in her book is normal childhood exploration, and others calling it very abnormal. Joining us today to help us figure this out is Dr. Mary Kohlbrenner, an inner-city family practice doctor in D.C. and very good friend of Hannah's. You'll help us put the Dunham details in perspective, I hope, and also just talk more broadly about the spectrum of healthy childhood sexual behavior. Hello, Mary or Dr. Kohlbrenner. Hello. Mary's good. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So let's get the Dunham stuff out of the way first because, well, it's the reason for us doing this segment. It's probably the least interesting thing to talk about. From what she's described in her book, which I just described in the intro, does that behavior sound to you like anything to be concerned about? No, I think the way you should think about this is literally what is your visceral response. I think, you know, we now can read all the literature of what the American Academy of Pediatrics says and what the legal words say, but really what is your visceral ick response? And that's actually what I use in my office as well. So really, you know, when you say it sort of starkly, like she opened her one-year-old sister's vagina, your ick response might start going, but if you picture two kids and the seven-year-old looking at the one-year-old saying, what's going on in there, you don't really get much ick, right? And if a parent came in and said to me, this is what happened, I would say that's normal development. I mean, you should talk to her about the fact that, you know, vaginas are private, blah, 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 blah. I think certainly the first two, the kiss and the, the touching, would have no ick response. The third one, you know, the masturbation one, feels a little more uncomfortable, but the child was asleep. Right now, this gets you in a little bit of gray territory, but not really great territory. It really all seems developmentally normal. And any parent coming into me saying, this is what's happening in my household, I would talk to them about it, but it would not put up red flags for me. So, Mary, the thing that I was thinking is the difference between the first and the second is that we impose sexuality even on kids' genitals when they're not necessarily thinking of it as a sexual thing. It's like more of an exploratory thing. Is that why the masturbation is different than, say, the kissing, which just seems like messing around? Like when people people had different ick responses, including some feminists who are concerned about sexual abuse had an ick response to the vagina part. And I wonder it's because, you know, masturbation is, is explicitly sexual. Yeah, it is contextual. But when I say the ick response, I'm not quite so much talking about, like, does this offend you, right? Right. <laughs> and I guess you're right. Everybody has their own ick response. But, you know, we have sort of abnormalized the kid, a one-year-old's genitals. A one-year-old's genitals, people are looking at all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. You're constantly changing diapers. Right. Right? And so... You know, the fact that nobody is using it for pleasure, but is just a question of what does this look like, makes it to me not even a question of abuse. Right. And also, it's not like something she did every day. Right. Well, we don't know, but it's also that she's writing about it in an adult voice, and I think kind of coyly without necessarily knowing that she's coyly doing it. So I'm just going to read the rest of it. She says, I leaned down between her legs and carefully spread open her vagina. She didn't resist. 
Like, that's a weird thing to say after that. And I think only an adult, like a kid is not thinking necessarily she didn't resist. I think that word is is adult wording. My echometer just went up. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think that's like, you have to separate. That's Lena Dunham being Lena Dunham. And that is its right. own, like, you know, annoying. I can I can totally dislike her for that and for trying to, I mean, you know, in some way she, get what, she gets what she deserves by riling us up with, you know, that sort of language. But the actual acts are the same. Right. You know, regardless of sort of the way that right. she, she and phrases it. And that act it. is totally benign and yeah. happens all the time. And if I call Child Protective Services with that one, they would not do anything. So what would make, I mean, not to go into the real ick place, what would set off alarm bells? Like you're a doctor, a mom comes in, she's like, this is about siblings, right? Is it, you know, like what, are, what if we could make a list of things, age difference, like does that set off alarm right. bells? Siblings are really complicated, especially in my practice where there is so much half-siblings, non-siblings, cousins living in the same house, right? So right. in the inner city, that's one of the things that predisposes this conversation to hot, like it makes it it makes abuse more likely, right. and it makes it something that I have to ask about more often. But mm-hmm. the thing, so the age difference is huge. So age difference is number one, but not age difference. So, you know, Lena Dunham was supposedly seven or eight, and her sister was one, but the act itself was benign. But so, I would say the things that make me uncomfortable are repeat interest. Every mm-hmm. time I walk in the room, my eight, my six-year-old son is, you know, trying to touch his four-year-old brother's penis. Right. Right? Uh-oh. <laughs> right? No, like every time, every time, right? The every time is a problem. Yes, yeah. the every time. Okay. Right. And what I would say then, I mean, the first thing I do in that case is try to figure out if there are any other sources of abuse in the household. Uh-huh. Right? Like, Not that that, uh, that that constitutes the abuse, but, like, what's going on with that six-year-old boy? Right. Wait, uh, Allison, you, I just realized something. You said, uh-oh, because your six-year-old is interested in your four-year-old's penis or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, not. certainly not every time. But, yeah, we. I mean, like in the bath, they certainly have an interest in each other's peenies, uh, as we call them in our house. Should. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes I'm like, what? Uh, stop. But I reckon, I mean, I, I feel like it's totally normal. It is totally normal. But if someone brings it to the doctor, right, that also changes it. It means something about it is making that mother uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? So immediately you're already in the ick zone. Right. I mean, listen, I was talking to my kids about this, and we remembered a family joke that went on for years, which went something like this. Stop opening my butt. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, wait. So other than age, what about gender? Like, does a boy looking at a girl's vagina? Gender does not interest me in this at at all. all. Okay. Not at all. Interesting. I mean, I mostly see it with boys, but the real issues where I've seen real things, it's mostly boys as perpetrators. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't experience the data differently or the story, the narrative differently. No. Okay. So we have age. We have repeated interests. Wait, I'm sorry. Can I go back? Age is age, age difference or age just like that one of them is old enough to, for it to actually be not exploring the body, but something more. If you have someone who's past puberty, it's a different conversation okay. together. Okay. Right? Period. I just want to go back to sort of what is probably the more common scenario, which is younger kids, like what I was saying, you know, my kids in the bath or whatever, touching each other, looking at each other. I wonder if you just have any advice on what parents, like how much of that should you just ignore because it's kids being kids and it's not something to like make them feel embarrassed or ashamed about? And how much should you address it? 
You know, I think with a six and a four year old, you ignore all of it. Okay. With an eight and a six year old, you start to say to the eight year old, you know, you know, your penis is private. I mean, someone once asked me, I remember this, when do kids stop shower, girls shop showering with their dads? And I remember thinking it was a deeply interesting question until my daughters got older and it became obvious. <laughs> right? We didn't have to enact it. They just stopped. I don't know if it's obvious. I grew up in a household where my my dad was, like, totally comfortable being naked around me, and I didn't realize there was anything strange about that until I got older, and nothing wrong with it. I'm just being clear, but, like, now I realize that most people I tell that think it's very strange, and it didn't feel strange. I don't think it, like, it's we all have the same kind of thing that dings. Well, I have to say you know, my son started telling me, you know, ew, stop walking around naked. And yeah. So I stopped walking around naked, not because I think there's anything wrong with it, but because it make, he, he has, he's clearly picking up correct information from his sex ed class, which is that, you know, nakedness at private, it's resonating with him because he's kind of pre-puberty. And so I just respect it. And I don't, even though there's nothing actually wrong, you know, why put it in his face? Right. I have to tell you, certainly with small children, I would absolutely say nothing. Except unless, you know, sometimes, you know, in the bath when someone's like really interested or like, you just say like, you know, even when they're little, you know, you might want to leave. If it doesn't feel good to them, you should stop. It's private. I did stop it when my, I just recently on Halloween caught my six-year-old almost narrowly sticking a ninja sword into his younger brother's tush. I stopped that. (laughs) (laughs) We can can end it there. (laughs) Okay, Mary, thank you so much for coming on. Truly a pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, today we have a great new advertiser, Little Passports, which brings a travel adventure right to your home each and every month through its award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pal Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Japan, Egypt, France, Kenya, and Brazil. The kits include a passport, maps, letters, souvenirs, stickers, photos, activities, and access to online games. And the first kit even comes in a cool travel suitcase. I am psyched about Little Passports for two reasons. One, it's a great holiday gift idea for kids 5 to 10 years old. No more trying to remember what video games your nieces and nephews don't have at the last minute. And I also love it because it both comes in the mail. Kids love getting packages in the mail. At least my kids do. I think all kids do. And it has an online component. So it's really the best of both worlds. Uh, I know my kids will be excited to get the Israel package since that's where their cousins live. But regardless of whether you have family overseas or can travel with your kids in their early years, Little Passports will inspire a love of travel, language, and world cultures in them. And you, mom and dad, our fighting listeners can save 40% on the first month today if you use the promo code MOMANDDAD40. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D-4-0. To get that deal and to learn more, go to littlepassports.com slash momanddad. littlepassports.com slash M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D and use the promo code MOMANDDAD40. On to our listener call. Kara? Hi, Dan and Allison. I enjoy your blog, Mom and Dad Fighting. I had a question. I have twins who will be celebrating their first birthday on Christmas Day. So not only do they share their birthday with each other, they also share it with Jesus. And I need some help with how to celebrate their birthday um, more at this point for their families so they know that it's not a combination of the two of them or of the two of them and the holiday. Anything you can offer 
is uh, very much appreciated. Thanks. So as a Jew, I am very unqualified to answer this question, but we have a very special guest with us this week to answer it. My Slate colleague, Laura Anderson, who knows a thing or two about Christmas birthdays. Hey, Laura. Hey, Allison. So can you help, Kara? I have a few suggestions. I was born on Christmas Eve, which is slightly different from being born on Christmas. But my parents always did a really good job of making me feel like my birthday was being recognized and celebrated separately from Christmas with a few sort of simple, superficial, concrete things. One thing that my mom always did was to wrap my birthday presents separately from my Christmas presents. So my birthday presents were in birthday wrapping paper. My Christmas presents were in Christmas wrapping paper. In hindsight, that seems like maybe a waste of paper. But it really helped me feel like, oh, my birthday was being recognized. It was separate from Christmas. Um, Also, this also seems really simple, but putting the birthday presents in a separate place from the Christmas tree. So if you have your Christmas tree in the living room, put the birthday presents on the kitchen table. It doesn't matter where they are. But just having like a separate area that is discreet and dedicated to the celebration of the birthday, I think, will help uh, Kara's twins feel like this is, you know, a different celebration from Christmas. And... Uh, The third thing I wanted to say is to uh, have a birthday cake or another dessert that is intended to celebrate the twins' birthday with candles or, you know, whatever it is that you do. Make it clear that this is for the birthday instead of for Christmas. And I think that's sort of my general suggestion is make up your mind ahead of time whether a treat or a celebration or something else is supposed to be for birthday or for Christmas because I think that that Kids really like that sort of clarity and having more ambiguity, I think, will make your kids feel like, oh, you're just sort of tacking on the birthday celebration onto Christmas instead of having it be something that is special and independent from Christmas. Okay, two follow-up questions. One, when did you used to have your birthday party when you were a kid? Usually a week or so before my birthday, because the closer you get to Christmas, the harder it is to get kids' schedules freed up for parties like that. So it was usually sometime in mid-December. And was this sad for you when you were a kid, or was it always like you didn't, it it wasn't something that ruined your childhood? (laughs) It was totally, it was totally fine. Uh, It did not ruin my childhood at all. I mean, you hear horror stories about people whose birthdays are just completely forgotten. But I think as long as parents make an effort to recognize it in some way that is separate from Christmas, then your kid is going to be totally happy with it. Okay, great. Thank you for the advice. Kara, I hope that's helpful. I hope your kids have a really great birthday and Christmas. Okay, on to our second topic. Recently, I talked to a law enforcement guy who specializes in cyber crimes about parents who give their kids cell phones. And he said, would you give your kid a loaded gun without teaching them how to use it? We were talking about sexting, but the point still stands. About 80% of teenagers and 60% of tweens have cell phones. About half of those are smartphones with easy access to the internet. Parents usually give out cell phones because they want to be able to reach their kids at all times, but kids have their own ideas about what to do with them, which can create all kinds of havoc. So we discuss what should parents do and what should schools do. We're joined for this segment by Emily Bazelon, a political gabfester, New York Times Magazine staff writer, and maybe more relevant for this topic, the author of Sticks and Stones about bullying. So, Emily, hi. Hey, Anna. 
So let me ask you the first basic question, which all parents wonder about. What age should you give your kid a cell phone? So you've seen the horror stories of cell phones, like the things that can go wrong, the pictures that can spread around. And I'm not, of course, talking about your own child here, but your reporting. Actually, before we start the segment, just tell us the ages and the names of your children, which is how we usually get going on these topics. I have two boys. Eli is 14 and Simon is 11. And when did you give them cell phones and why? So we are very big proponents of delaying. Um, And actually, this comes even more from my husband than from me. I'm the one who reports out the stories of things gone wrong, but he has a kind of deep skepticism of screens that is... um, goes uh, deeper than mine. So when Eli started seventh grade, he was going to a new school and he lobbied for a phone. He said, as children do, that everybody had a phone. By seventh grade, it seemed like not everyone had a phone, but most kids had phones. We did not, however, want him to be carrying around a computer in his pocket with access to the internet and a camera. Just seemed like a bad idea. So um, we got him what we all called a dumb phone which (laughs) did not have access to the internet and allowed him to send basically individual text messages. He could have also made phone calls and gotten them, but he is not interested in speaking on the phone like every teenager I know. So he couldn't group text, he couldn't go online, and he couldn't do any social media from that phone. He had it for 7th and 8th grade. He complained about it sporadically, um, and then over the summer before ninth grade, really started campaigning for a smartphone. We had a fight. My husband really did not want to get him this phone, still felt like it was a bad idea. I felt like there was so much social capital, particularly in group texting as a way of communicating among kids, that it was okay. And I also felt like he could handle this phone. So now he has an iPhone at the age of, what is it, 14 and a half or so. And my younger son has no phone and has not asked for a phone, in fact. In the two years that he was that he had the dumb phone, was that the reason you gave him that phone was to let him feel like a little bit of phone freedom or really so you could be in touch with him? You know, I think that parents talk about wanting to be in touch with their kid and that's like a little bit useful. I mean, it comes in handy. I don't think that's really why kids want phones. It's definitely not why they want them. And I don't even really think it's why we give the phones. So I'd say that was like a side benefit. But really, this was about him being part of a community of teenagers in which this is how they communicate. But don't you think that's a mismatch? Like, I feel like when I ask parents, why did you give your kids a cell phone? You know, nine times out of 10, because she was doing, you know, lacrosse practice, and I had to know when to pick her up, or she was going to a friend's house. It's like a logistical thing. So parents don't really address the question of what the kid wants the phone for and what the kid is going to use the phone for. That's like the first blind spot that happens is people just don't think about it. Right. That's probably true. And my answer to that would be if that's really why you're giving your kid the phone, then get them a dumb phone, which is Uh really unusual. It's actually hard to find a dumb phone at this point. We had to like do some real poking around to find a phone that had the very limited capabilities we wanted and that was still on our phone plan. Now, what actually were you worried about? Like you, you can't do group texting on a dumb phone. Not without, like, a better plan than Eli had. (laughs) It it may be that there was some way it could have happened, but we just didn't have it happen. I mean, I'm actually, I'm a little bit uh, on the fence about the group texting because I think he missed out on some just, like, conversations among friends because he couldn't group text. And 
it's not really that I was scared or alarmed because I actually trust Eli a lot and think he is like in a lot of ways like a better, nicer person than I am. But I just felt like not why is this potentially scary, but why is this potentially beneficial? And I just didn't see a benefit from it. Why does he need to be checking ESPN at all times of the day as opposed to actually having conversations face-to-face with human beings? Um, It just seemed like if nothing else, just a waste of time. What is the so- different social dynamic between the individual text and the, and the group text? Like, what were you preventing him from doing? Well, I mean, I'm interested in whether Hannah's daughter is experiencing this too, but what we are certainly seeing with the beginning of ninth grade is that there are, like, groups, and I think this was happening before, and Eli just wasn't in on it. There are just, like, groups of kids, and they have this running conversation going on. I mean, when I look at the face of his phone because he gets a text and it lights up, there is, like, this practically constant stream of texts going on among, I don't know, eight or ten kids. I'm not completely sure. I can sort of look over at it. It never looks bad to me. Um, we have made sure to make the phone sleep downstairs to basically at 10 o'clock at night. Like, that's enough because it seems like it could go on and on forever if uh, if they were allowed. And I think the other thing for Eli is he has friends from overnight camp he's also staying in touch with in this way, although not as, like, constantly. Anna, talk a little bit about that late-night phone situation. Yeah, I mean, I think Emily's gotten to the heart of the matter, which is that there are the outside, and they're not necessarily hysterical concerns, but the alarming concerns, which do happen, the kind of naked picture gets sent around, the bullying, you know, all the stuff we read about in the news. And that's at the outer rim of concern. But then there's the day-to-day concern, which is this constant stream of, you know, it's both vital to their sense of existence, like that literally they exist if they are on social media. That's where the drama happens. That's where you're in the know. That's where you know sort of who's doing what. It's, it's, it's the equivalent to them of what would be for you shutting off your Twitter feed. Like if you have this sense that all the discussion around the campaign, say, is happening on Twitter, and then somebody told you you can't read the Twitter feed, on the one hand, you would say to yourself, well, then I'm just completely out of it. And on the other hand, you would say, but then I'm not completely distracted all the time, you know, and I think the same is true for them. They're facing the same problem we're facing. I hear you talk about Eli. Now, why don't I face this dilemma? Because my daughter is much less social. So she's just not into the social scene the way most kids are. And so she's not going to be pulled in or distracted by it. But I would be ambivalent because I'd think like he's, you know, the schools are now facing this decision of letting the kids use their phones in class. And it's like, well, why? So they could just be reading these streams of things like maybe somebody else has their lunch hour while they are sitting in math class. And so they would just be tempted to check in the way you and I are tempted to check in, you know, maybe in the middle of recording this podcast if I had my cell phone out, which I do not, you know. So <laughs> so so I think that so, so the real dilemma is a kind of more mundane one than than the scary dilemmas that we read about in the paper. Yeah, I completely agree. And I really think it's important to frame this not in terms of like, what are the bad things that will happen if you give the phone, but rather, what is the benefit of the phone? This is a privilege. Why am I spending this money giving my kid this computer to carry around in his or her pocket? That's what it is. So, you know, is your nine-year-old ready to have access to the internet 
carrying around with him or her? Like, why? Why is that a good idea? So let's talk about the benefits, okay? One of the benefits is just that you exist on social media. There was a New York Times story about how, you know, all the overscheduled kids, once they're done with their homework and eating dinner with their parents and getting back from their sports games, it's like midnight or 11 p.m., and that's when they kind of relax and come back to life. So let's say at a time when, you know, a husband and wife might be watching TV or whatever, that's when they kind of, you know, check into Twitter or check into Instagram. And when we used to get on the phone, when we used to shut our doors and get on the phone with our friends. Yes. And arguably, this is not worse. It might even be better than those ridiculous long phone conversations that my dad would always like come in and storm into the room and hang up the phone on me. Yeah. And those are important because you actually get to relax and feel yourself and try out conversations. And, you know, that's I, I, I don't think we should discount that. That counts as a benefit kind of existing in the social world, you know, just kind of experimenting with yourself as a social being in the high school landscape. I think that's cool. But at what age? In the high school landscape? The middle school landscape? The fifth grade landscape? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on the kid, you know? But right. that's because that's, that could be incredibly important to some kids in middle school. I mean, some kids just live for that in middle school, and other kids are seem very little, and they don't care, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think for us, and I'm going to, this is very like gender stereotype thing to say, but I think this was easier for us having boys because my boys are not actually all that social um, and are kind of oblivious often to like whatever drama is going on. And so um, it just, they didn't push that hard for the kind of social media access in middle school that I think would have been very hard for my husband and me to say yes to. Now, another benefit. What's another benefit? How about independence? Like, I think my daughter's phone doesn't connect to the internet and she won't let me get her a new phone. And I don't really understand why, because it seems to me, you know, (laughs) she goes around the city by herself. Like, she goes to school downtown in D.C. She rides her bike usually, but sometimes takes the bus. There are, like, bus schedules, directions. She's got to meet somebody somewhere. She's got to know if some place is open that she has to get something from. It's like just the, the logistical way we navigate the world, especially in a city when you're not being driven. That seems to me a benefit of a smartphone. Now, why does she not care about those things? What's her alternate way of figuring them out? Does she ask people for help, which might not be such a bad thing? Yes, she texts me or oh. David and says, like, <laughs> so I'm over here. So you know, you like, get to Google the bus yes, it's really inefficient. Yes, she'll text me and say, <laughs> I'm over here and I need to get over there. You know, like old school, like when I would get lost and I would, you know, call David or someone and say, like, get me from this place to that place if they were sitting at a computer. So, but I think just to highlight that, like, the, the city and suburbs divide, I think, does matter. I mean, I, I think we'll probably get our kids cell phones earlier than the, if we stay in the city than we would have if we were in the suburbs just for for that reason. They'll be more they'll be more independent. Right. Is there another benefit we can think of? So what about, you know, schools are having this debate now which I'm very leery of. And Emily, I would love for you to weigh in. There's a lot of schools which are debating the cell phone ban because the majority of schools don't allow you to have cell phones during the day or they make you put the cell phone away. Or if anything, they kind of turn a blind eye if you have it sort of in your pocket. But but the official rule is you can't have cell phones out. And now schools are starting to have the debate that elementary schools had with tablets, which is, you know, basically all these kids have little tablets in their pockets, these older kids, like high school kids, maybe we should just incorporate them into the curriculum and let them use them. So a teacher can say, okay, now everybody look up X and Y thing on your phone, and then the kids can use that as part of their research, which I'm really, really have a bad reaction to. But I wonder what you guys react to that. 
Oh, I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, I maybe like there's some research out there. I should be less reactionary and more open-minded. But I mean, at Yale, where my husband teaches, more and more faculty are trying to are they're banning laptops. They're banning any device from the classroom because they go around and kids are on social media or like playing poker instead of paying attention. There is a way in which these devices they're incredibly useful um, and helpful in so many ways. They are also like. <laughs> They're like a ADD, you know, wonderland of a place where we are constantly distracted. And so to me, the idea that there would be enough benefit from, you know, looking up some speech Romeo gave to Juliet um, once in English class to justify having the phones in school just seems like a terrible idea to me. Yeah, I'm not for this either. I mean, I, like at first blush, I thought, you know, I'm pro schools being realistic about the way teenagers behave <laughs> and being, you know, pro technology. But at the same time, like it's not like when all when all teenagers started watching television, then we started learning, bringing TVs all into the school and kids were like learning by television. I don't think it's and that was a terrible idea and just meant that they were like the TVs became ad vehicles. I mean, really, right. like it's ridiculous. Yeah, it seems to me a don't ask, don't tell policy or yeah. whatever you want to call it is sort of the best. But they all kind of have their cell phones out. They take them out at lunchtime. That's plenty. They check in with their friends. You know, they, they text their moms, whatever they're going to do during that lunch hour or they check them quickly between classes in their lockers. And that's good enough. Okay, guys, this is a really fascinating conversation, and we haven't even touched on everything, so maybe you'll come back, Emily. When I emailed Emily saying, what's the biggest issue you have with your teenage kids these days? She, like, immediately wrote back saying phones. So I think we have to talk about this more, but this was great. Thanks for coming on, Emily. You are so welcome. All right, on to recommendations. Hannah, you go first. I'm going to recommend a game. Uh, This is a game that's particularly good if your kids are slow to warm to other people. It's a game called Quelf. Hmm. It's a fairly popular game, but it allows kids to choose cards and do lots of silly things. It's, you know, it's like a kid equivalent of a drinking game. But for my kids, like when we get together with cousins or have people come over who they don't necessarily know that well, like let's say we invite friends over and their kids are there, it really allows them to get kind of kid-like and silly and warm to each other really quickly. So it's really served me well as a parent of relatively reserved children. Okay, that sounds cool. I'm going to recommend slot car racing. (laughs) Have you ever taken your kids slot car racing? My parents took slot car racing is in New York, and I don't know where else they have it. But my there was a period when my little kid who was really into cars just like totally drooled over some slot car track. I think it was in Brooklyn, actually. Uh, well, maybe it was where I took my kids this weekend, which is called Buzzarama. But i assuming there's slot car racing in other places in the country. I hope I'm not recommending only a Brooklyn thing. But it's really fun. We went to this place that probably has not been touched or cleaned in 50 years. But it just has a bunch of different tracks where your kids each get a remote and these little metal cars that have little slots at the bottom of them or little, you know, whatever, pieces of metal at the bottom of them that you stick into a slot on a track. And they race them with their friends or with, like, whatever, other kids that they don't know but end up playing with and racing with and fighting with um, at the track. And it was a really fun thing to do on a rainy, cold day and much better than... Chuck E. Cheese or anything like Chuck E. Cheese. So, slot car racing. Highly recommend. And that's our show. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. 
Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, to the managing editor of Slate Podcast, Joel Meyer, and to Andy Bowers, executive producer of all Slate Podcasts. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Mary Kohlbrenner and Emily Bazelon. Thanks to intern Laura Bradley for helping us with research. And thanks to you, Hannah. Totally fun. My pleasure. Anytime. Uh, And thank you all for listening.